The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Welcome to Our Wild World. The word today is the notion of rewilding. In conservation circles, and it seems, in the jargon of now, a meme for our times. Everywhere we turn, we see a call for humanity to transform. If not to undo, at least find ways to fix what we've done. All that which was foretold to us in the 1950s and 60s, from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, Edward Abbey's Monkey Wrench Gang, and E.O. Wilson's A Sinking Ark. But today, the 1960s is ancient history. We stopped heeding the warnings and instead ran hell-bent for leather into overconsumption and pinned ourselves in the hopes that technology would cure and solve all our woes. So today, we're going to take a walk on the rewilding side, and I welcome back Mark Beckoff, animal expert, scientist, ethologist, and professor emeritus at Colorado University at Boulder. Previously on Our Wild World, we discussed the need for compassionate conservation, as we humans decide who lives, who dies, and why. Since then, Mark has gone further in personal journeys and in his new book, Rewilding Our Hearts, Building Pathways of Compassion and Coexistence, which perhaps is the deeper and necessary primer, the precursor to rehabilitating humanity and learning Compassion 101. Not only a reminder for those of us who have forgotten, but a preparation for those yet to learn how to embrace the concept of compassionate coexistence and to renew how we see ourselves, each other, and especially our wild world, to be able to reimagine and redefine what we can believe is possible. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks, Ellie. It's really great to be here. I really appreciate your interest in my work. It's fascinating. As I've said before, I think I've read every book. I don't have this latest one yet, um, so hopefully it's available. And uh, definitely, is it available on Amazon already, or where can people find it? Yeah, Amazon. All all the major booksellers have it, and um, they could also get it through New World Library, who is the publisher, but... Um, it's it's out there, yeah. <laughs> it's out there. So, folks, check it out. Rewilding Our Hearts, Building Pathways of Compassion and Coexistence, which is, I'd say, at this point in time, a culmination of 
what, 20, several decades of Mark's work of um, understanding, working with, and being an activist for animal mind, theory of mind, animal behavior as separate from humans, but living with us and a way for us to see them not just in terms of ourselves, but in terms of themselves. So this brings us to this concept of rewilding. Uh, tell us about this. How, how did this come around? It was a very personal journey for you. So what happened? How'd you get here? Yeah, well, the concept of rewilding was used in conservation biology for a really long time to build corridors, mainly carnivores. That's how it started, you know, so underpasses, overpasses, and places where animals, um, individual animals could live free of human intrusions. I, excuse me, I look at rewilding as a real personal and a spiritual move that involves becoming re-enchanted and reconnected to nature. And as you put it really aptly, you know, it's kind of a transformation and an undoing. So I like to look at rewilding as undoing the unwilding that comes from education, media, and life itself, and, you know, busyness, if you will. And as a form of rehabilitation as well, because we know that as we connect with other nature, and I I include humans in the other nature, so rewilding has a broad agenda of reconnecting with non-human animals, human animals, and landscapes, Um, it makes us feel better. So it's it's a rehabilitation um, that we all need in this very challenging world. This is what I love so much about your work, and you uh, present this and represent this in just about every one of your books, which I suggest anyone listening pick up any one of them to read. There's uh, a long list of publications and fabulous books. But what Mark is so wonderful at is connecting this web, not looking at wild, the land and wildlife, as something so foreign and other than us, that we are really all one being, one connected web. So in terms of what you were just saying, rewilding in terms of conservation sort of makes one think, oh, we're going to bring back mastodons and cheetahs and lions to North America. And, you know, understandably, that makes ranchers and some people uh, freak out. But what you're talking about here is this bridge of in order to get to that concept of rewilding nature and bring an undoing or fixing what we've done, we have to start within us. Exactly. And that's sort of the subtitle, um, Building Pathways of uh, Compassion and Coexistence. The the way I kind of look at it metaphorically is that we rewild, we rewild in our hearts we feel good and signals go to the brain and the brain goes to muscles and we do something. I mean, that's kind of like a reductionist view, but, but that's what I really mean. I mean that by reconnecting and by becoming re-enchanted with other nature and by rehabilitating ourselves and by rewilding, we will then do something for the world that will help not only ourselves as people, so it's not really egocentric, but because it helps us feel better, there's a higher likelihood that we will then do positive things for other beings. 
non-human and human animal. So it really is personal. And, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about for a really long time. And this whole idea just came to me over a long time. (laughs) (laughs) This whole idea came to me over a long time. As most epiphanies do, it is a gathering of information of a lifetime and of a series of being able to take it step by step. We have to vent sometimes the first bits, get it out so that we can learn and grow. So, you know, rewilding has um, a connotation to it of, you know, wild, that untamed, untrammeled wilderness. So you're applying this to us, a personal transformation. So we're talking a lot about this today in, in, in many movements of re-engaging and reconnecting with nature, you know, stopping the virtual connection, getting away from the TV, using our bodies and actually physically walking barefoot upon the earth and touching things. But how do we go about doing that in a very real, very everyday manner? <clears throat> right. <coughs> Excuse me. The nice thing about rewilding, as I see it, is you don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to have a fortune of money. You don't have to found a movement. I mean, you can rewild by just standing out on your deck and looking at flowers or looking at insects or hummingbirds or squirrels. You don't have to be looking at you know exotic animals or magnificent predators. Um, I've had a lot of emails since the book came out that have been really really phenomenal a woman in new york who started planting just some trees and some plants on her rooftop garden and over the course of a few years she's become kind of a citizen scientist expert on bees and insects um another story i like to tell is walking through central park um when i go to visit my sister i was looking at squirrels and a bunch of kids came by and said oh you know mister what are you doing so i said oh i'm looking at squirrels And their mom just said something like, oh, they're just squirrels. And I went, no, no. So I said, you know, I knew that I knew that talking to her was useless. So I basically talked to the kids. I said, oh, do you do you happen to live with a dog? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, they're all mammals. And and, you know, these were probably five year old kids. When I left 10 minutes later, I had I like to believe, and I think I did, I created citizen ethologists. They, they were, one was saying to mom, you know, oh, can we come back? I really want to watch these squirrels. So, so that's a form of rewilding. I mean, I live in Boulder, Colorado, and it's pretty easy to get out into the open here. But, but the simple thing about rewilding, as I see it, is you can do it anywhere. I can watch pigeons in New York City. I can watch squirrels in Central Park, and I can watch cougars around my old mountain home. Or you could watch your patio garden, rooftop garden grow from seed. Yep. I just, in fact, I had an email just yesterday from a woman in Iowa who's basically applying it to some landscape ideas. And, you know, once again, you know, a lot of people who do work in, on the, quote, environment, they sometimes forget that non-human animal residents are part of what we call the environment. Absolutely. You know, and, and they get so wrapped up in different aspects. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but they forget that, you know, the integrity of different landscapes and different environments really depends on who's living there. Exactly. And, As yeah. you've said so many times, you know, we're building in their backyard. 
Yes. And um, a lot of a lot of times, in terms of other programs and guests I've had on this show, we end up looking at it in the urban situation in terms of conflict. So what you're talking about is looking at it in terms of embracing and understanding that we all are a part of this community, whether it's a squirrel or a cougar. Exactly, and that's how I look at rewilding <coughs> as a community effort. And you use the word meme. I look at it as a meme. And for those who don't know what a meme is, when you think of a gene, DNA, we pass on our genetic, basically, you know, constitution via DNA. And memes would be ways of spreading ideas in the same way as genes work. They just go from culture to culture across the world. So one part of rewilding is to set an example a model for others. I do something, you do something, your friends do something, your family does something, and it almost grows exponentially as an idea. And that's why I see rewilding as a meme that, in a, you know, in a sense, it can be very contagious. So, And especially in today's world of super technology, where we are connected instantaneously across the globe. Oh, yeah. I mean, with the Internet, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I mean, <laughs> and that, but that also, see, that also, you know, ha- plays into that saying that some people used to, you know, criticize was what happens in Boulder, Colorado, where I live, affects what happens in Chengdu, China, where I work with moon bears. No, it does. And today in the, you know, the highly connected world, what happens in one place really does affect what happens not only across the world, but throughout the world. So what you're telling us is that in, in a world of globalization, where we've you know, come to look at it as in a tendency of negative impacts, in that we spread virus, viral, in a bad way, and destructive and decimating, that we can create a wave of transformation that is positive. Oh, Absolutely. That's exactly how I cash it out. That it's that wave of trans. It's that wave of positive transformation, by example, you know, if you will, exactly right. And that we need to pay very much attention to what's working and not what's not working. <laughs> so, how can we do this in terms of quote unquote? Um, I'm using my fingers to highlight this, the establishment. Um, In a world today where people feel their vote doesn't count, so we end up with what we get because we don't vote. And, um, you know, a top-down situation of policymakers and governments, which has just seemed to have gone off the rails worldwide, worldwide, excuse me, to, let's say, education. How do we make this transformation in this this established system? How do we go about in our daily lives, each one of us, um, as an individual or as a community or as a PTA association, to rewild, let's say, as you talk about, our education system? Yep, I think of it as a bottom-up way. You act locally and think globally. You, you focus on what you can change. And you're right, I have a chapter in my book called Rewilding the Classroom, which is really rewilding education, which is really unwilding, the, you know, undoing the unwilding that comes in education, sitting in classrooms, playing computer games, you know, even using computers to learn certain things rather than just going out. Absolutely. So uh, perhaps you've heard of Sir Ken Robinson and his wonderful TED Talk, um, how cr- 
classrooms are killing creativity of our students and that over the past 50 years we've simply educated from the waist up for the head and slightly off to the side that we've forgotten about our bodies and that our bodies interconnect with the world so how does rewilding in a classroom work let's take an example so if one of our listeners was out there and said whoa this is something i could do what's what's an example Oh, I can think of a lot, but one would would have been like, had I thought about it this way, Ellie, I would have said to the kids in the park, well, maybe you could come here with your class. Um, A couple of years ago, I was riding my bike home on the Boulder bike path, and I came across a bunch of kids on their knees with little boxes that had little mesh on them. And what they were doing was they were looking at insects on the Boulder bike path And then, you know, I mean, of course, you know, I might not have had them do it, but what their teacher did was they wanted to measure them, they wanted to look at them, and so they put them in a box. But the cool thing was the teacher had them put them back, you know, right where they picked them up. And so, you know, I'm sure the insects were okay. There there was no killing of them. So that would be one way. Another would be have have a classroom or a community garden, and you can... You know, part of you know part of rewilding is having an appreciation for plants and trees and bushes. And you know, another part of rewilding is having an appreciation for inanimate landscapes. You know, teaching kids that if they go pick up a rock, that they need to put it back where they've put it. But but you know, it's it's difficult these days just because of of the interconnectivity, the the World Wide Web, and I mean I. I was doing um, a Roots and Shoots event. I do a lot of work with Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots um, groups. And this girl started talking about a mammal in South America about whom I never heard. And I said to her, I mean, she was in, this would have been third grade. And she said, oh, I found it on the web. I was doing a search for mammals in South America. And I went, oh, my goodness gracious, my, my freshmen in college don't do that. This is what's so amazing about the world and our technology in a sense that it will save us or can certainly help us solve some, recreate, reimagine, renew some ideas to, ideas and ideals toward Reed Wilding is that our youth is so um, body, mind, hand coordinated to this technology where, you know, us older folks, it's kind of a newer thing and we don't, we, we don't organically gravitate to it the way children do. So it is an incredible opportunity. So um, in terms of rewilding, we're gonna, we've got a, a minute here or so until the break. What I'd like to get into is there's this concept of here in the in western culture we're working very hard to rewild protect and save wildlife landscapes habitats elsewhere let's talk about the charismatic megafauna elephants rhino lions and they don't live here but we find it very important for others to do so so how do we help not only that happen, which is sort of working, but how do we help us understand that as we focus on other species, we're not focusing here, you know, our mountain lions, our bobcats. Yeah, that's why I said before I like the action, the um, the little bumper sticker, 
act locally, think globally. I agree with you. I mean, I've worked all over the world, and I think it's just really important. I mean, people really like the charismatic animals, but my goodness, we have amazing charismatic animals in in the States. I mean, we have wolves in the West. We have cougars all over the place. We've got beautiful, beautiful brown um, black bears, um, of course, grizzly bears in certain areas. We've got magnificent birds. We've got wonderful insects and snakes. And so, you know, when people, people, I think part of it is the wanderlust that people have, and they just want to run all over the place. But, but really, I agree with you that we will do more good by doing a lot of local work and then applying those principles and applying those feelings and, if you will, applying the rewilding then globally. Absolutely. So stick with us, folks. We're going to take a short back and we're going to talk more about rewilding our hearts and minds and how that works for the system. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Lots of people talk about publishing their work, but have no idea where to start. If you are one of these aspiring authors or know somebody who is, don't miss Publishing Today Radio with Athena Dean Holtz. Thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and in general, storytellers all want to get their messages in print. And that includes branding and marketing. Athena and her guests are here to answer your publishing questions and more. Tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. 
Welcome back with Our Wild World and my guest, Mark Peckoff. Before the break, we've been talking about rewilding. And rewilding is not just a concept for conservationists and bringing back species and habitats and landscapes, but it is about transforming our own mindsets and how we interact with each other and our world. So, Mark, we were talking about how we can do this at home, rewilding the classroom, rewilding ourselves. So as we, as a Western nation and Western culture, focus so much on the rewilding and preserving and protecting and conserving species elsewhere, you talked about, you know, building rooftop gardens and taking a walk in the park and looking at our own species from squirrels to cougars. So how do we go about, in terms of compassionate coexistence, which we talked about before, and the decision of who lives, who dies, and why, how do we go about reconnecting and rewilding this relationship to literally understanding what compassionate coexistence means when it comes in to our backyard, gets into our house, kills our pet, or kills our um, financial stability, our cows or our sheep. How do, we, how do we bring those two together? Well, you know, it's a difficult agenda. I mean, you know, let's face it. A lot of people are losing livelihoods because of predators killing livestock. A lot of people have put, you know, a lot of time and money into building gardens. I think you'd start really with the very basics of trying to teach people that rewilding and um, compassionate conservation, that that movement, which is tied into rewilding, where you respect individual animals, in the end, really helps ourselves. And... So some people will say, oh, well, that's really selfish. I have to be honest with you. The world is complex. It's challenging. It's frustrating. It's demanding. So if you decide that because you feel better because you take care of an animal in a certain way, that's okay because the end result is that you and the individual animal benefit, okay? So one way is, once again, as you pointed out earlier, thinking of – rewilding as rehabilitation and this personal journey being a very positive experience. Um, I think that getting that message across to kids, of course, would be the best thing we could do for the future of the world because you want them primed and you want them imprinted on connecting with other nature, connecting with other animals, connecting with other people and basically incorporating that into their MO, into the way they, you know, act every day. That's, that would, that's where I would begin is it would be a complete mindset. It would be a paradigm change. It would be a revolution. That's, that's the way I look at it. It would be a revolution to get younger generations really into realizing that the world is so incredibly interconnected. You know, I personally think that is happening because I'd say for the last at least five years, if not ten, we, at least in conservation, have been focusing on engaging and incorporating and collaborating and partnering with youth. So that leaves us with this, let's say, 20-year gap of from the, let's say, 13 to 30-something, 40-something, that 
is sort of stuck in this me generation, this overconsumption, let's party till it's gone um, mentality. Uh, how do we engage them if they're not, if they don't have children? If they have children, all right, it's a, it, as you say, it's a no-brainer. Um, you want a future for your children. But let's say you're single, or um, you live alone, or you're uh, in a community that you know doesn't engage in that. How do we help this this gap, this gap generation, the me generation, the Y generation, connect? How do we get them to understand that compassion? takes place outside themselves well (laughs) i think like i said showing them i mean one way would be is that they're not alone i mean that you know they may think it's all me 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 and stuff like that but to show them that in fact their own lives would be better by if you will connecting with others and being compassionate and one of the messages i show to people one one of the messages i try to bring is that compassion begets compassion there's there's actually good you know research on that that the more compassionate you are and the more compassion you spread out to the world the more compassionate you'll become and the more compassionate others will become but i'll be honest with you ellie every now and again i meet somebody who is just so self-centered and selfish and egocentric i basically say okay you want to take it this way that's fine and i and when i say that's fine i only say it's fine because i would rather spend my time working with people who i know i can change and perhaps they'll change me in positive ways and who are interested in being open-minded and learning how to change. It, 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 exactly. Right. And so, so I met a woman and she, I mean, she was really, she was nice. She was really, you know, she was a very nice person. She had a very open heart. She was very compassionate, at least on her account. And, you know, she just said, you know, I'm too busy making, I mean, she was serious about it too. I'm too busy trying to make a life. I don't have time to worry about other animals you, you know, we were kind of concentrating on non-human animals because that's what I do a lot of work in. So I said to her, oh, but, you know, when you're, when you're having a bad day or you're having a tough day, what do you do? Oh, I go out for a walk. And I said, oh, and, like, do you talk to trees? Do you smell the flowers? And she just said, oh, you know, I get a kick out of watching the birds fly and play with one another Oh, I get a kick out of seeing deer, and that's all I needed. And I said, and all I said it was not like you know a, a lesson, other than saying, oh, but in fact, you see that when you're not feeling good, you go out into nature, you see other animals, and they make you feel better, and then you go back to your office, and you feel better, and you're more productive, or something, or you you know you're more positive. And she said yes, and I didn't say anything else because I thought, you know. She was old enough to connect the dots. <laughs> All you needed to do was smile, wink, and walk away. So yes. basically what you're saying is what we can do for, the, for that group of people that we are trying to connect with, rather than write them off, because they are going to be our political force, our yep. agenda makers in another 20, 
20 years or 10 yep. years, yep. which is kind of a frightening thought if they are so narcissistic, self-involved and overconsumptive. Um, I do have a few worries and concerns about where we're going to be in 10 years and yep. that we do need to do a lot of work in 10 years as we work on children who will be in the next 50 years, you know, far beyond when you and I are probably no longer here um, running the world. So what you're saying is when we talk to someone, what we do is find in a conversation that hook where we can relate and connect to the other and make it not so other and bring it inside. Exactly. I, I In my book and elsewhere, I've developed what I call the um, eight P's of rewilding. And I've actually um, extended it to the 10 P's. But among them would be being positive, persistent, patient, peaceful, passionate, and practical, and p- being present. And those, that's basically what I brought to this woman, you know, I was being positive. I wasn't criticizing her because, you know, you don't get anywhere when you criticize people. I was showing her, you know, how things could work. I appreciated her, you know, um, views. So I was, I was persistent. I was being very practical and I was demonstrating to her my passion. And so once again, you know, it's kind of like setting the example, maybe setting up this, meme and then in a sense honestly just walking away just saying hey look you know i'm trying to show you how you can do something that you think you can't do so now it's up to you to do the work you know with younger kids and the kids i work with in some of the roots and shoots groups you have to do more because they're younger they don't have that cognitive ability and they also are not on their own i mean they're you hope they're not on their own (laughs) Um, but, but really just once again, almost, you know, it's almost like talking to somebody who's, you know, having a messy day and letting them just by talking with them, not at them, not to them, but talking with them, letting their, letting them solve their own problem. And in terms of roots and shoots, planting the seed and let it grow. That's all you can do. You plant the seed and then it's going you know, it's going to grow and it's going to grow or not in some ways, regardless of what you do. And so that's the way I look at it. You know, um, plant the seed and, and let's see, you know, from a rewilding as a spiritual move or a very personal and deep move, you plant the seed and then you just hope it grows and you hope they water the garden in a meta- metaphorically and, you know, do more. I, it's just... It's just something I've been thinking about for a really long time in terms of how you get people to change and make changes. You've got to show how it benefits them and then sort of the, you know, the icing on the cake is how it benefits others. Absolutely. And in my work and the work that I do in Africa, I tended to avoid using the word change. None of us really want yeah, to change. Exactly. It's, it, it, it implies a negative sacrifice that we have to give something up. So I learned to use the word reorient. You know, if we can find a way to reorient and open a doorway and a pathway, as you call it, to finding a different 
worldview, just just an inkling, just a little wink, a sparkle, yep. then perhaps this is our way to rewild ourselves, which in what you're saying is the um, the pathway to rewilding our world. It doesn't mean bringing back or going living in a cave or giving up. Yep. It's about paying it forward. We all know when we smile at somebody and they smile back, it makes us feel good. And when we feel good, as you said, then we have a tendency to spread that pot of positive vibe. The universe really does work on that energy. And um, it's not so difficult. It's very simple, but maybe sometimes very complex to, you know, do that mental mind switch the flip of I'm having a bad day what can I do to make myself feel good and um, we're sitting there talking ourselves like the commentary of uh, watching a DVD and listening to the director's cut that we're never really in the movie we're just talking about the movie so what you're saying is be a part of your own movie that's exactly right take you know in a sense you know I don't know I don't know all the psychological jargon but take control of your life yeah, I know you're busy. I mean, I'm busy. We're all busy. But, you know, sometimes I've done these little self-tests and say, okay, you know, how much do I get it done in the end, in a week? You know, not, not in a day, but say in a week or two weeks. And do I get more done if I just focus, focus, focus without taking that time for me to go ride a bike or take a hike or rewild? And the answer is on any given day you will because, you know, if there's – 16 or 18 hours that you work or do something if you go do something else you don't have those hours for productivity but i can tell you in the long run over two weeks or a month there is no doubt that i don't do any more if i just don't get out you know what i mean if i just say okay i'm really busy i've got to get this stuff done so i'm just going to work constantly i don't get any more done i think we use as that as an excuse oh i'm busy and that And that, you know, period, that stops the conversation right there and shuts off the mind. So if we just leave, oh, I'm busy out of the conversation and just do it, I hate to have to use that old worn out phrase, just do it, but it really is so much easier and takes so much less time than, you know, chewing on it over and over and berating yourself and feeling negative about yourself and what you didn't do. A couple of weeks ago. I get up early. I tend to get up around four or five and I get a lot of work done so I can go off on my long bike rides or take a walk in the morning. And it was about 7.30 and I was having one hell of a time trying to write a few sentences about this notion, um, this movement called compassion or conservation. And it was really frustrating. And finally, I got up, changed, jumped on my bike. And I really mean it. I wound up up riding for about three hours. I solved the dilemma that I was trying to do sitting at my desk in the first three minutes of my ride. (laughs) That's amazing because you're absolutely right. If we keep forcing it and pushing it and pushing it and nudging it so directly and head on, a lot of times the solution or the answer 
eludes us, where if we go do something else that makes us feel better and takes our mind off of it, then, whoa, suddenly the brain unconsciously is still chewing on it, and there it comes. It just flows. It's sort of like being tuned into the tuning fork of the, the universe. I hate to sound airy-fairy, but nope. it does work. I've personally been going through this kind of a journey myself, facing a lot of hardships, and if you focus on these negatives, then that's what you're going to get. You're going to keep staying negative. Yep. Positivity generates positivity. Negativity digs you into a hellhole. You get into one of these vortices of negativity and you are done. I, it's funny. I was riding with my friend this morning and they know me well enough that I always say when I'm really feeling whacked out and stressed, that's the best time to get me to go ride. And I was riding with her and I said, so Julia, how's your day? And she said, I am so busy. I can't believe it. And I'm so happy you called to go ride because that's exactly what I needed. <laughs> and you know, what you're talking about here is connecting. We do need in this world of virtual isolation, where we spend so much time in a cubicle behind our computer and focused on our work, because that's what the benchmark is today. And yeah. that's a whole other conversation I'd love to have with you sometime, is shifting this benchmark of what we call health and wealth from a monetary one to a well-being one, which, you know, is, is the same thing and can solve a whole lot more problems in a much positive, more positive way. But it is connecting. So if you're, you're, if you're finding yourself alone, then, you know, go do something. And if you're walking your dog or just go for a walk where you see people walking your dogs, you're going to connect. And it's amazing the conversations that will just be generated and take place in those little moments and gems that can happen. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I agree with you totally because, you know, I, I, tr I give a lot of talks, I travel, and I can be very social, but really, I'm almost naturally a recluse, and that's another thing that I really, you know, I, I can say I'm guarded about, you know, I, I get to the point where I go, oh my goodness, you know, I, for the last four days, I've done some long bike rides on my own, I come home and I work, I watch, you know, I don't, I don't burn out because... I have this theory, I walk away from my cortex, I don't burn out, I'll watch a crappy movie, I'll read a book where you can read every other page and not miss a beat. <laughs> but, but seriously, you know, I write about it in Rewilding, about avoiding the burnout. By, as my friend Bruce Gottlieb, he's a psychologist, says, you walk away from your cortex. And part of what you just said is, that's how I maintain, if you will, that benchmark of positivity and well-being is when I'm done, you know, it's funny, you know, and I can um, apply it immediately. I've been on the go today. I'm talking with you. I've got a few minute break and then I've got something else to do. And I felt so energized. I got back from a nice ride, you know, little buzz saying, oh my, I've got 20 minutes. I can shower, eat and do something. But once again, I felt a lot better doing that than sitting on my couch waiting to talk to you, waiting to do this, waiting to do that. It, yeah, it, you, you mentioned a good point there. It seems we spend a lot of time waiting. Yeah. <laughs> when, um, you know, actually we could just go do something, you know, just even if it's step outside, stretch for a moment and breathe deeply. So, yep. um, Mark, once again, it's been a pleasure. I know you're a busy man. And um, so we're, we're going to 
I'm pleased that you gave me this time today, but it looks like we're out of time because you've got another meeting to go to. So once again, our listeners, please check out Rewilding Our Hearts, Building Pathways of Compassion and Coexistence, and many of the other books that Mark has written about wildlife, ethology, animal behavior, and understanding the animal mind, not just in terms of us, but in terms of that there are other lives and other living beings out there. So thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Ellie, and thank you, listeners. And if you ever have any questions, you can find me. And a great place to find me would be at my homepage, which is very simply markbeckoff.com. Thank so. you for mentioning that, and I hope our listeners do that. And, Mark, I thank you because you just made my day that much brighter. So I'm energized and going to go rewild some more. So thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great. And uh, listeners, stick with us. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Re-enchantment with ourselves and nature is necessary to get us from where we are to where we need to be, and we need to be doing this now. Too many of us have been standing on the sidelines. We're watching what is happening and becoming overwhelmed. Or, as psychologist, economist, and author of several books, Pears Espen Stokemis has coined as the great grief, how to cope with losing our world. In his book, What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming, Stokeness is saying is that this condition of our individual grief and emotional loss can actually be a physical and psychological reaction to the decline of our air, water, and ecology. This is not a conversation and topic you'll hear covered on the nightly news 
or in the media. It is one that is only beginning to come up in conversations about health and mental health. But it is cropping up more and more as people are confronting fears about what kind of world our sons and daughters will face. But where do we bring this conversation as an individual? Some people bring it to the ther their therapists as they face an overall depression that is hard to articulate as a medical disorder. Overall, it is as if this topic is not supposed to be publicly discussed. We can no longer ignore the overwhelming evidence from cli climate scientists and conservationists that we will face unprecedented warming and extinctions in the coming decades. Those same scientists, just like you or I, struggle with the emotions that are evoked by these facts and dire projections, that our children are going to be living in a world very different than the one we grew up in, and may face challenges that we are only just beginning to contemplate, that the future may hold a world that is deprived of the rich, diverse world we have known. How do we relate to and live with this sad knowledge? Just think for a moment, as Stokeness asks of us, that perhaps this great grief is arising from the ruthlessness and sadness of the ongoing destruction we are causing, that it is not just inside us, but a surging wave of grief arriving, reaching out to us from the deep seas, from the earth, from the species and plants we are eradicating from the face of the planet, and from the air that we have polluted, that this grief is not just a personal whim or condition to be labeled depression or mood disorder, to be treated with more chemicals, but instead this grief, these truths, this depression may accurately, accurately reflect the state of the ecology of our world. According to the Living Planet Index and Millennium Assessment Report, more than half of all animals have gone in the last 40 years, and most ecosystems are being degraded and used unsustainably. We're living inside a mass extinction event and seem to barely consciously notice or talk about it in polite conversation. It is as we entertain and deny ourselves out of existence. Denial is, of course, an essential life-enhancing function that keeps us comfortable, blotting out that which we would rather not see nor accept. But if continuing to avoid this grief and hurt and despair, or finding ways to blame others, the corporations, politicians, agribusiness, loggers, hunters, corrupt bureaucrats to blame for our woes, we could, rather than dis dismiss them as wrong or as a weakness of ourselves, and as someone else's fault, instead, learn to lean into and accept these feelings and acknowledge them. Through all the life sciences today, we are learning not to scoff at such reactions or movements in the soul, but to honor them, to find a way not only to express our grief from personal experiences resulting from the multitude of disruptions we have wrought upon earth and each other, but to embrace them and connect to each other through them. Rewilding our hearts, finding pathways to coexistence then, in this sense becomes a very real and necessary therapeutic tool, one that allows us to get in touch with our despair over the degradation of the natural world, and instead of separating ourselves from it, become a part of the healing and connecting with nature and our earth and each other, become part of the process. All is not lost. We still have wild places and wild things, 
and despite all the laws we may defy, the ones we cannot defy are the laws of nature, and they are speaking up loud and clear. That industrializing and monetizing nature for a value that is represented only by the dollar and benefits only one species, us, humans, we are losing what gives us life. By numbing ourselves to the tragedies around us and instead spending our wealth like spoilt children in a candy store, we are denuding our lives and our earth. To accomplish this transition, we need not only to face what we are doing, but to educate the world about what is happening around us and to our wildlife and wild lands. To this effect, coming up on Our Wild World is a series of guests and experts about one of these critical issues that encompasses not only the industrialization of wildlife for purely monetary gain, but the disruption it is causing to one of our greatest historical and iconic species, the African lion. There have been episodes before on this program highlighting the plight of lions, their decline in the wild, and some of the efforts to turn this around, from projects engaging people to lions through cultural traditions, to non-lethal conflict resolution between lions, people, and their livestock. Many of these very same issues apply to the conflicts and decimation we are facing right here in the United States and our relationships to our own carnivores. Carnivores are critical to our Earth's ecosystems. Removing them from the wild has had, and will have, severe ripple effects on the communities that depend upon them, not only as hunters, but as providers of food for the innumerable life forms that depend upon the deep, decomposing carcasses of their prey. Effects as wide-ranging as climate shifts that we are seeing, and as much as these climate shifts create challenges for the predators, as both their habitat and prey are affected. Increased human population on wild habitats pushes our carnivores into ever smaller spaces, again pushing people and livestock into conflicts. Resolving these conflicts and finding solutions requires a reduction of us in order to keep space for them. As we head into this challenging future, we need to think in terms of how we will manage ourselves, not just in terms of managing wildlife and nature. Nature does a damn fine job of managing herself. At this point in history, we are the single major factor that is changing Earth systems. And the more we meddle, the more we try to manage these systems to our own singular benefit, well, the more solutions we must keep coming up with. One cannot meddle with one thing and expect all else to just fall into place. Interference works both ways, too. We have already interfered so drastically that now we find that we have to interfere to protect, to protect vanishing species. And that is what we must do with what is happening to African lions. We've come to a crossroads, and it is being sorely felt by lions the world over, from wild places to captive spaces. As we lose our wild lands and wild lions, we have concocted an industry that benefits only one aspect in the spectrum of humanity, the collector of trophies, and the wallet. I am not talking about fair chase, fair game hunting, subsistence hunting, or sustainable use hunting. I am talking about a, a sustained abuse of animals bred in captivity for one thing only, money. The money breeders make through all the spin-off industries, cub petting, lion walking, and safari-themed parks. 
to when the animal is too old for such close human interaction and is then shuffled off to the canned lion hunts or the lions that have been bred in captivity for the money to be made in the entertainment business from unethical and inhumane zoos and theme parks that care not a whit for the condition of the animal nor its welfare. Oddly enough, through successful advocacy toward banning some of these unethical hunting and captive practices and inhumane zoos, we have created a Catch-22, where millions of animals will be affected by new laws being enacted the world over, those laws that prohibit the keeping of carnivores and other species in captivity. This upcoming series on lions will focus on both wild and captive lions, their place in our history, their place on our planet, their place in our hearts and minds and our cultures, and further, the effects we are having upon them, from loss of habitat to industrializing them to recognizing the damage we have created and rescuing them from us. It's time we wake up to what we have done and what we are doing and look at the world we are living in. We have amazing technology today that was science fiction five years ago, five decades ago. We have strayed from a world of fiction onto a path of fantasy that technology will save us. We, re we need to remember that it is our technology that connects us and will be a part of the pathway to rebuilding ourselves, but that it will take humanity to use the technology wisely, and it will take humanity to rewild ourselves and our earth to reconnect and grow our compassionate footprint and to learn to coexist, that Earth and all her creatures and life does not exist just for us, that just because we can do something does not mean we should. And that is the message for today, to remember to take a good long look at what we are losing and to fight and work toward what we know we can do and to become a part of something larger than ourselves, rewild ourselves, our hearts, and our minds, and to teach the importance that the wild has to our very existence and to our world, to our children. To remember that at every opportunity we have, we can embrace our wild world and the joy it brings to us and bring to fruition and understanding that which is possible. And believe, and believe that the hope for our future lies in our minds and beneath our feet. Thank you for listening. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 